Amen. Thank you. It's great to be with you again this evening. Uh, you should have a box, and in that box there are two things you need to be especially careful about. They're two little cups. They have covers on them. One has uh, salt water in it, and I'll tell you when to use that. The other has grape juice in it, and I'll tell you when to use that. Uh, the idea, uh, there, there are four cups usually during the Passover Seder, and so we drink the cup four times. But because of our time restraints and just the, where we're having the uh, Seder, it, it's going to be difficult to pour four times. So if you can, you can just sip four different times and, and use it that way. All right? You should also have a uh, booklet. Uh, yours is going to look a little different. It doesn't have this colorful cover, but uh, it's called the Haggadah. It means the telling. It is the uh, instrument that Jewish families will use to retell the story of the Passover and go through the ritual of the Passover uh, every year. All right? Well, about uh, 3,500 years ago, uh, God's people, the Israelites, were uh, in Egypt. And I'm going to try to condense a lot of this first part because I want to spend most of our time on the last part. So I'll just simply say a few things like this. Uh, God's intention was to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And he used the leader Moses and he used uh, ten miracles we know as the plagues. And the last of those plagues uh, is where the Passover comes from. Uh, the last of the plagues would affect not just the Egyptians, but also the Israelites as well. And that was the death of the firstborn. I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with that. Um, we'd have this we'd have this dialogue and be a little more interactive, but we've got to go quickly. So um, the uh, the last plague would affect both the Israelites and the Egyptians. And so in order to keep the Israelites from experiencing the death of their firstborn, God entered into an agreement with them, a de facto covenant, although the language of covenant is not used there in Exodus in that particular place. Uh, a covenant is a binding legal agreement between two parties. It symbolizes a relationship. And in this case, God made promises and he had expectations of, of the Israelites. And the Israelites made promises to God, and they were expecting that God would fulfill his promises, which he is always faithful to do. Amen? Uh, with the last of the plagues, uh, being a covenant also, um, covenants today, we have contracts. That's sort of our idea of a legally binding agreement. Uh, we sign our names to it, but in biblical times, there was a sign or some sort of a symbol that was the, the thing that made the, the um, covenant binding. And all of God's covenants with people were signed and sealed in blood. And in this case, it was to be the blood of a sacrifice, a sacrificed lamb, which they would eat as part of a meal, and they would use the blood in a particular way in this ritual. They would take the blood, and they would put it on the doorposts and the lintels of their house. And the angel of death passing through the land of Egypt would see that sign 
that those people were putting their trust in God and expecting God to fulfill his promises and that they were going to be obedient to God with regard to this ritual that God had explained to them. And you can take a look at it early in Exodus, in particular chapter 12 of Exodus. We'll talk about different aspects of that as we go along. The angel of death, seeing that seeing that sign of the covenant would pass over that household and not take the life of the firstborn. Well, God says in Exodus chapter 12, and uh, again, uh, well, I should mention this. I've tried to include this time, uh, although I didn't have this in, in the booklet last time, I've tried to include scriptures. So there are scriptural references for all of these, uh, most of these sections, and although I'm not going to go and read every one or quote in entirety some of them that I normally would do, these will be here for you to check on and uh, help you to think through it afterwards. Does that make sense? Okay. God had instructed in Exodus chapter 12 uh, that the Israelites were to participate in that first Passover, but then to have the Passover as an uh, annual ritual every year, forever. The the Hebrew word used there as lasting ordinance is forever. And so they still do. And they have this celebration in their homes, not in synagogues, in their homes. And the reason is because the first Passover was was in the home. And it was led not by a priest because there was no priesthood of Israel yet. There was... The, the person who had a priestly responsibility or a priestly role in relationship to his family, that would be the father or grandfather if he was present. And so it's still led by, um, by, the, by the father. Um, a man will often wear, not all, uh, all Jewish men will do this, but uh, those, those that do will wear this kittel, and it symbolizes that priestly role. Do you remember how the Old Testament priests had to wear robes? And... Uh, and so they'll wear this to symbolize that priestly role that they have and that responsibility that they have in relationship to their family. And uh, they'll wear it at um, several times in their lives. They'll wear it at Passover and at a couple of other um, festivals uh, where sacrifice was involved. And they'll wear it at two other times in their life. They'll wear it when they get married. And they'll wear it when they get buried as a burial shroud. So actually, as I'm... My, my job tonight is to try to uh, illustrate for you how all of this uh, is a revelation of Christ and points to Christ. Uh, every aspect of this really does, and this does as well. Um, keep that in mind. He wears it when he gets married, and he wears it when he gets buried, and you'll see that as we go along if you remember it. All right? Uh, oftentimes Jewish men will wear the kippot, or, well, they will, they will typically wear the the kippot or the yarmulke. You seen one of these before? Jewish men say that they, they, uh, this helps them to remember there's always someone above them, which I quite like. And uh, then this prayer shawl uh, is typical for worship and festivals and their times of prayer. Um, the, uh, the knots and the tassels uh, have a... Um, uh, arithmetical uh, connection to the 613 laws that God gave to, the, to his people in the Old Testament, which uh, that, that Jewish families, I, I had an opportunity to be in uh, Jerusalem um, a number of years ago, and, and they're very excited about knowing exactly what God wants them to do so that they can live righteously and, 
and they know exactly what to do. However, for me, uh, that's problematic because uh, 613 is a lot of rules to obey. <laughs> and since we know that the violation of one is violation of them all, that's, that's why the Passover as a revelation of Christ is so significant. Okay, but this is what uh, a, a, a Jewish man might wear. So I wanted to illustrate that for you. What we're going to go through is the typical ritual that the Jewish families go through. But as I said, my job will be to try to show you the revelation of Christ in it all. All of it points to Christ in one way or another, and it is a progressive message of the gospel, the most unique one that I know. And so I hope that that will make sense for you, even as I go very quickly here. I do need to say this, that uh, a lot of Jewish families will celebrate this just as a historical event rather than a spiritual event. And, and yet the spiritual meaning was in it from the very beginning. In Exodus chapter 12, God instructed the Israelites uh, something that, that helped them to understand a very important point. They were going to be in relationship with a holy God. And they had a problem being in a relationship with a holy God. And that was that they were not holy people. Me too. Anybody else in here? Okay. So there's a problem between a holy God and uh, unholy people, and that problem is called sin. And so uh, the, really the, the, the structure of the Passover Seder reveals uh, here's the problem of sin. Here is how God is going to, how we need to look to God to solve the problem of sin. Here how, here's how God, the means by which God is going to use uh, to, to solve the problem of sin. Here's the instrument that God's going to use to bring about that solution. And, uh, and, then, and then the revelation of who, who, in fact, that is, is seen in the last part of the Passover. Well, um, what they had to do is they had to get rid of something out of their house. They had to cleanse their house uh, in preparation for the Passover. And what they had to do is get all leaven, or the modern word for that is yeast, out of the house because yeast symbolizes sin, right? And so it became a tradition uh, not by God's decree uh, that it was, it was a tradition to get, get rid of the yeast, but it became a tradition among God's people in various uh, places in various times to, where fathers would play, play a game with their kids. And they'd take pieces of cookies and cakes and breads that had yeast in them and hide them all around the house. And then what they would do is they would turn off all the lights and go around with a candle. Uh, and the children would go around with their father and a candle to hunt out those pieces of cookies and cakes and breads. And when they found them, they were not supposed to eat them. Instead, their father would take a a wooden spoon and a feather and uh, sweep those into the wooden spoon and take them and either throw them into the fireplace in their home or in a lot of communities, what they would do is they, they would gather them in canvas bags and take them out with other families and make a bonfire out of them as part of it. And this was, a, uh, you know, an, an interesting and, and instructive um, word picture of uh, recognizing the problem of sin, not, not messing with sin, uh, not trying to solve the problem of sin uh, yourself, but to look to your earthly father to, 
to help you to deal with the problem of sin, which is how God's designed the family. But more importantly, that all of us as God's children by creation, not necessarily by nature, but by, by being his created beings as his children, we need to recognize that sin's a problem. Amen. And we shouldn't try to solve the problem of sin ourselves because we cannot do it. Instead, we look to our Heavenly Father to solve the problem of sin, which he's done through his son, Jesus Christ, which is what the Passover Seder itself is all about. And so that's a great preparation for what we're going to do, and that's a great introduction for what we're going to do now. If you'll take your Haggadah, uh, we've talked about the first thing there on page one, purging out the leaven. Uh, Now the lighting of the festival candles. And uh, is there a a lady who would be willing to come and and help me by um, lighting these candles? Anybody? Thank you. If you don't mind, just light these candles for me. And the rest of you ladies and young ladies, you see that there's a prayer there. It says, a woman. And basically what I'll ask for all of you to do is to read this prayer in unison. All right? And I'll get you started with a cadence that will help you to do it. Um, That's got it. Thank you very much. All right, here we go. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of And we all say, amen. Good. Well, as I said, all of this points to Christ, and this does too. I could go into detail on this, but simply this is uh, a way of illustrating the important truth, the basic foundational truth of the gospel, that God had to become a man in order to accomplish our salvation. Because it was a human death penalty that had to be paid. And it was human righteousness that was necessary to be accept, for us to be acceptable before God. And so God himself was uh, born uh, of a woman, not of an earthly father, but was human because he was born of a woman. No, no um, sinful nature because he wasn't, the sinful nature is passed down by the father, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but born of a woman. And so he's fully God and fully man. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. Perfect human righteousness and obedience to all of God's law, uh, both intent and letter, and, uh, and died the sacrificial death that none of us could, could uh, pay for ourselves. And uh, so Jesus is known as the light of the world, among other names in the New Testament. And so how does the light of the world come into the world? Through the hand of a woman. And although the mother doesn't do any of the other instruction about the Passover, none of the other revelation of the meaning of the Passover, she does a lot of work to prepare the food and the home, but she doesn't do any of the instruction. That's the father's responsibility. But she does this one thing at the very beginning, and I think that that's significant because it illustrates that he was born of a woman and became a man. And uh, she brings the light to the Passover table just as Mary brought the light of the world into the world. Isn't that lovely? All right, next, the four cups. This is where you have to be really careful with your um, little uh, box there and Carefully open the lid on the grape juice. We're going to um, take a sip of that in just a moment. But there are four cups. The first is the cup of sanctification. 
And each of them goes with a promise that God made to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The first one, the cup of sanctification, goes with the promise, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second is the cup of judgment. It goes with the promise, I will free you from bondage. The third is the cup of redemption. It goes with the promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth is the cup of praise. And that goes with the promise, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. We're going to take a sip of this after we pray this prayer together uh, with the cup of sanctification. And just so you see the symbols, sanctification means, among other things, purification. And so do you see the symbol, problem of sin, need for cleansing, needs for, need for purification. All right? In Hebrew, this, this prayer sounds uh, like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri Hagafen. Okay, and uh, in English, let's uh, let's read together. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And just drink a little bit of that. As I said, you'll need it three other times. So put the lid back on it and take care of it there. Next is the washing of hands. Another symbol you see of uh, of cleansing. Are you seeing it? Now, what they would do, we're not, we're not doing that here, um, just, uh, again, for, for time's sake and just organization's sake. Typically, what they have is a bowl and a pitcher and a towel, and the, the head of the family will go around and uh, present the bowl. People will hold their hands over the bowl. He'll pour some water over their hands, and they will symbolically wash and dry off with the towel. Now, all of the gospel accounts uh, have... Um, have uh, recorded the uh, the Passover Seder that Jesus had the last week of his life uh, with his disciples. All of the, Jesus and the disciples had the Passover every year with their families. But this year, and the Gospel of Luke records it, that Jesus said that he had greatly longed to celebrate the Passover with them because he wouldn't participate in it again until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this last, this Seder that Jesus had with his disciples, we call the Last Supper. You may be familiar with that. John's gospel records part of the parts of the Last Supper, beginning in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, there is a washing that you may be familiar with. That's the washing where the where the leader of the Passover serves. Uh, but the washing that you read about in John 13 is not a hand washing. What is it? It's a foot washing, right? Because Jesus combined. This symbol of service in the Passover Seder with another symbol, with, an, with another ritual um, or tradition among Middle Eastern peoples. Among Middle Eastern peoples, showing hospitality was a vitally important matter of honor. If somebody came into your house, you were responsible for their life. So you wanted to show that you were caring for their needs and meeting their needs. And so in those days, what would happen is if you came to a, an event like this at someone's home, you would go and... Uh, Probably go to the public baths, take your clean clothes, put new clean clothes on. But because when you traveled to their house, you walked on dirt roads and you wore sandals, uh, when you got there, your feet were dirty. So a good host would have a servant or a slave wash his guests' feet to show that he was taking care of them. Jesus at the Last Supper, you may be familiar with this, it says that he took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And the Jews, uh, the disciples would have recognized that symbol because uh, slaves wore a white apron or towel-like garment uh, called an encomboma. 
And if you weren't a slave, you wouldn't wear one. But Jesus dressed like a slave, and they recognized that. And that's so when, Peter, when, when Jesus got to Peter, Peter said, Lord, are you going to, going to wash my feet? Jesus said something interesting. Um, and I'd love to tell you the longer details of this at some point. But he says, you don't understand what I'm doing for you right now. But later, you will understand. And if you read First Peter chapter 5, and you read it in Greek, you'll see why I say he learned his lesson. He, he, did, he did understand it later. But in any case, uh, then Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. And then Peter said, Lord, wash my head and my hands as well. Jesus finished and he said, uh, do you understand what I've done for you? Which was, you know, a re- <laughs> that was a rhetorical question because the answer, of course, was no, they did not understand. He already told them that they wouldn't. Um, but he said, you call me Lord and Master, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, if I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. I've set for you an example that you should do as I've done for you. And so Jesus was showing what kind of a Messiah that he was. And he was trying to illustrate what kind of, uh, what his nature was and what the nature of those who were to be his followers was to be. And the disciples didn't get it. Honestly, the disciples argued over and over again about which one of them was the greatest. And they even, according to Luke's gospel, argued about that very topic at the Last Supper after Jesus did this. Jesus rebuked them at at an earlier time uh, when they were all upset by, uh, by James and John, who got their mother involved in the argument, if you remember the story. And he said, the Gentiles lorded over their subjects and exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant. And who would be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it took a long time for the disciples to really understand that and really realize that. They didn't at that Last Supper. But I mentioned it here in particular, took the time to mention it because I don't want us to miss it in this Seder that we're doing. That's the Savior that we have. And that is the character of those who are to be following him. He's set for us an example that we should do as he's done for us. Amen? All right. Next is the dipping of the parsley. In your box, you have a sprig of parsley, and then there is a little um, tub there of salt water, which you want to open up. It has kosher salt mixed with the water. Now, the, the parsley has several different uh, significances in, in the Passover Seder. It represents spring. Passover is in the springtime, and therefore it represents life. It also represents the hyssop branch, the, the Jewish families will say. The hyssop branch, which was used to dip in the blood of the Passover lamb uh, to put on the doorposts and lintels in the, in the first Passover. All right? And so... They dip the parsley in salt water uh, twice. And there's a kind of another historical thing that they've connected with it. They dip it once to symbolize the Israelites going into the Red Sea and then coming out again. And a second time to symbolize the Egyptians going into the Red Sea. But because they didn't come out again, they get swallowed up by the Red Sea. That's when they swallow up the parsley. But the, mo- the most important and very serious symbol here is this. They dip it in salt water to symbolize that sometimes life is immersed in tears. Now, I don't know what you've been through in your life. I'm going to tell you right now, and not any details, but this has been the hardest year of my family's life for a number of different reasons. Uh, 
I don't know what you've been through. Even some of you young ones, though, you've been through some hard things. But I, I can say this for all of us. Well, I, I can ask you. Has any of you suffered as a result of your own sin? Anybody in here? Anybody suffered as a result of somebody else's sin? I usually get more enthusiastic answers to that second question. <laughs> well, we all suffer because we live in a world that operates under the law of sin and death. Sometimes life is immersed in tears. So when you taste these tears and the bitterness of this parsley, it's not too bitter, but a little bit, remember that. And, and I would encourage you to, to just not wash that taste away right away. God designed this as a multi-sensory experience for us to remember. So we're going to pray this prayer together. Dip our parsley in the salt water twice and then eat that salty parsley. And here we go. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the earth. Dip once and dip twice and eat that salty parsley. When you get a second, could I get a napkin up here? Um, Because I know I'm going to get stuff on my hands. All right. Please look carefully at this. This is a matzah cover. It's made of white linen, symbolizing purity. Good. In it are three pieces of matzah, like this. There are three sections. Thank you very much. Top section with a piece of matzah in it, middle section, and the bottom section, again, with a piece of matzah in it. And uh, I hope you're all able to see that. Um, the Father will take this middle section of matzah out. Now let's read together. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in want come and celebrate the Passover with us. May it be God's will to redeem us from all evil and from all servitude. Now, the father breaks this and puts it in a smaller white linen matzah cover like this. And he hides it. And they'll send a child to find it later. Okay, but we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. Um, I do want you to see here. Another symbol and another illustration of the gospel. Notice it says this is the bread of affliction. They also call it the bread of poverty. When I think about that, I always think about the wonderful verse, which I didn't include here. But if you want to write it down, it's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, you know the grace that, it was in, that is in Christ Jesus? Who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'll tell you this. And uh, I'll mention it again later. Uh, At 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem, the Herodian temple, was destroyed by the Romans. And there were no more sacrifices offered after that. And therefore, Jews today typically do not eat lamb at Passover because the sacrifices aren't made. The the Passover sacrifices aren't made anymore. Okay? And uh, during that time period that followed, the the, um, imagery and the significance... uh, that went with the Passover lamb shifted to the bread. All right. There's other reasons why that's very significant, and you'll see some more later. But one of them is this: 
Uh, one of the, there were two, two schools of rabbinical thought that were significant in the history of um, the Israelites. One was the school of Shammai, and one was the school of Hillel. And Hillel was a rabbi that, uh, that led Israel um, as a, uh, in, in that rabbinical school uh, from before Christ was born. Uh, so he predates Christ. And he, he overlaps the life of Christ by a little bit when Jesus was a very young child. Okay? So that gives you a historical time period in which Hillel was, was giving his teaching. And Hillel taught when he did the Passover, um, and you'll understand why he would do it in, in a little while. I'll tell you that later. Um, well, he taught that that piece of bread that's hidden, the, the all of the matzah that they used at the at the Passover, he said, represented the nation of Israel. But the piece that was hidden away symbolized the Messiah. Okay? So that's why this bread of affliction. They're not sure why they have three compartments. Some think that the compartments symbolize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others say, say different things. But they don't all agree about it. And they're not really all, all that all that together on what the three pieces of matzah are. They think two of them might represent the double portion of manna that the Jews are supposed to collect on the day before the Sabbath. That would make sense historically and culturally as well. Okay? But it's that middle piece that's the bread of affliction or the bread of poverty uh, and that, that one that's hidden away that Hillel said symbolized the Messiah. So keep that in mind, and you'll probably, probably get your wheels turning with that. All right? Notice this also. Let all who are in, uh, in want come and celebrate. Let, I'm sorry. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all, let all who are in want come and celebrate the Passover with us. Does that sound a little bit like the, the, uh, the invitation of the gospel? Let all? Okay. Next is the Manishtana. This is uh, four questions that uh, a child will read. Do I have a, a young man who would like to read these questions for me? We're going to do it real quick, so I won't wait long because I've got to I've got to go quickly. But is there anyone who wants to? If you, okay, great. If you'll just read those questions for me in Hebrew. Uh, no, 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 they won't understand. You have to read it in English, or they won't understand. Okay. Yeah, it's great. Keep going. Great. You did a great job. What's your first name? Weston. Weston. Thank you so much. Give Weston a hand. Weston, next year in Hebrew, okay? Now, God told the Israelites, um, he didn't tell them to ask these questions, but if you look in Exodus chapter 12, it is interesting, and I'm going to mention it just to give you an illustration. The Jews, in, in developing this this program for for doing the Seder, they were trying to do what God said. For instance, in, in Exodus 12:26, it says, And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you, then tell them. So they developed this set of questions to, to be part of the Seder, uh, trying to do what God had told them to do. And the Father has the opportunity to answer the meaning of the, of the, 
symbols. This night is different from all other nights because on this night we celebrate the going forth of the Jewish people from slavery into freedom. Why do we eat only matzah tonight? When Pharaoh let the children of Israel go from Egypt, they were forced to flee in haste. They had no time to bake their bread and could not wait for the yeast to rise. The sun, which beat down on the dough as they carried it along, baked it into bread called matzah. So now uh, in your in your box, you have some pieces of matzah. You may want to just take a small one just to taste it this time. We're going to read a prayer together. And we're going to taste this matzah together. In Hebrew, the prayer sounds like this. Baruch atah Adonai Ocheinu Melech HaOlam Chomatzi Lechem Min HaAretz. In English, we read this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Go ahead and taste that matzah. All right, moving along. Why do we eat bitter herbs tonight? Because our forefathers were slaves and their lives were made very bitter. Now, I hope you paid attention to that. They're eating bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery. Of course, we know that this is not about a historical remembrance of slavery in Egypt. This is is and always has been about slavery to what? To sin, right. So, now I need to give you a a bit of caution. This is where we eat the horseradish. And I haven't tasted this horseradish. I should have tasted the horseradish earlier so i don't know if we got real pungent stuff or not but uh if we do that's good if if we don't uh that's that's fine too but um the idea is it's 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 supposed to be strong so use good judgment about what you think you can handle but i would encourage you at least uh to participate to some degree have 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 some of it all right so what what i will do is i'll take a piece of matzo myself and i will take a hunk of horseradish uh, not everything that you have there, but I'll take a hunk of it like that. See, I got a lot on there. Um, I'm going to need a little bit more one more time, but this time I'm just going to take this part. All right. And then, uh, get yours ready. We'll read the prayer. Um, we're going to need the prayer. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it probably doesn't hit you right off the bat, but after a moment or two chewing and trying to swallow it, it, it can be strong. So just if you suffer, try to suffer silently because when I get finished suffering up here with what I'm eating, I'm going to explain a few things. Okay, here we go. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by thy word and commanded us to eat bitter herbs. All right. This is another one that I could spend a lot of time on. There's a, there's some passages of scripture I'd love to quote in, in in their entirety. They're in your booklet. I'll simply refer to them briefly for the sake of time. But here here's what I want you to know. I like horseradish, but not like this. I like it when you mix it with ketchup and dip your you know cocktail shrimp in it, or I like it when you mix it with mayonnaise and put it on a roast beef sandwich. But when you eat horseradish like we just did, you find out something else about it. And I don't know how much you took and what your reaction was, but if, if you have good – and I, I took a good bit of it, so I had a good reaction. Uh, it can hurt, actually. Uh, oftentimes it makes your eyes water, brings tears. 
And uh, even if you took just a little bit, you, you taste that bitter taste, unless you've already washed it out, which I don't encourage you to do right now because we want to think about it for a minute. You see how good uh, or effective and accurate a, sim- a symbol of sin that that, that, that is? You know, we, we like sin. Uh, if you mix it into different aspects of our lives where, where we're tempted and attracted, uh, we want it, we go after it because of our sinful nature. But when we see sin the way God wants us to see sin, we understand that it hurts. It brings tears of regret and remorse sooner or later. And in every life, it leaves bitterness. And the truth is, the, the strongest reaction that you could have to horseradish in this kind of an, uh, an event is just a fraction of what life, an illustration of a fraction of what life is like for every person outside of Christ every moment of every day, whether they realize it or not. But you might be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, that's for unsaved people, but, you know, I'm saved, and I know that the Scripture says in Romans chapter uh, 8 that we're the, spirit, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And therefore there is now, yeah, see, you know that passage. I'd, I'd quote it in its entirety, but you, look, you can look it up. You're right. We are free from the law of sin and death spiritually, but that's Romans 8. We go back into Romans chapter 7, 7 and listen to what Paul says. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to Sin. A slave to sin? Well, he must not be talking about a Christian. Little later, he says, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Could that be an unsaved person? I'll ask that again. Could that be an unsaved person? No, they don't, in their inner being, they don't delight in God's law. That's a Christian. But he says, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. You see, yes, we're free from the law of sin and death spiritually, but we're still subject to the law of sin and death in the body. What does that mean for you and me? Does anybody get tempted? Anybody in here ever sin? You ever experience loneliness? Uh, depression? Loss? Uh, illness and if jesus doesn't return in our lifetime what's going to happen to everyone in this room we're going to die why because we're still subject to the law of sin and death slaves to the law of sin and death in our flesh okay that's why this is an effective an effective part of this ritual for us to remember but for those of us who are in christ the next one is even better so i'm going to explain what they do you have some um some matzah left what I would encourage you to do is do it this way. If you take just a little bit of the horseradish, now don't freak out. You may say, well, I don't want any more horseradish. Just take a little bit, just a little bit. And then there's an there's a, a apple mixture, apple, cinnamon. There may be some grape juice in there. I don't know how, how it was completely made, but usually there's cinnamon and apple juice, and I can, I can see that. Uh, the Jews say that it reminds them of mortar. Remember, the Jews had to make bricks in Egypt, so that's the historical kind of a thing there. It's called haroseth. And uh, what you want to do is, on your cracker, have a little bit of horseradish, and then take as much of that haroseth as that'll fit on your cracker, and make a little sandwich, and when you've done that, go ahead and eat it. Be messy, but go ahead and eat it.
Now, if you did what I said, you probably tasted a little bit of the horseradish, a little bitter taste. But it probably didn't burn like it did before because it's offset by the sweetness of the apple and the cinnamon mixture. And that's a beautiful symbol for Christians for this reason. I told you what it says in Romans 8 at the beginning. We're free from the law of sin and death spiritually. But I went back to Romans 7 and I said, we're still subject to the law of sin and death in our bodies. Listen to what Paul says later in Romans 8. He says, we, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. That means we're free from the law of sin and death spiritually. Grown inwardly. Why are we groaning inwardly if we're free from the law of sin and death spiritually? As we wait eagerly. What are we waiting eagerly for? He says, our adoption as sons. What is that? Listen to what he says next. The redemption of our bodies. Redeem means to buy back. So our bodies are going to be bought back from slavery to sin as well. Even though we're still, even as Christians, we're still subject to the law of sin and death. Still slaves to the law of sin and death in our bodies. We're going to be redeemed from that as well. Isn't that good news? And listen to what he says next. For in this hope we were saved. I think some Christians may miss the beat on this, but I hope you don't. You know we're going to have bodies in eternity. We're going to be a spirit and a body reunited, both free from the law of sin and death. I don't know what those resurrection bodies are going to look like and what they're going to be like. I think about Jesus who could be recognized. He could eat. He could also appear in rooms when he hadn't unlocked the door, which I think is kind of neat. And ours may not be like that, but I do know this about them. They won't be tempted anymore. And they won't sin anymore. And they won't experience sorrow and loss and loneliness. And they won't experience illness. And they won't experience death anymore. Isn't that a great hope? That's the hope in which we were saved. And listen to what he says. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So I, I don't know what you've been through. Hey, we've all been through something that we've never been through in our life this past year. Right? It, it's been hard. And there, may, there are probably other very difficult. Some of you may have lost loved ones and friends for various reasons and maybe connected with COVID. And lots of other things. It's just been hard. And I think the political climate in the United States is going to make it harder for Christians going forward than we've ever seen before, too. I'm not trying to make a political statement, just an objective observation. But I think that's probably true. So we'll, st- we'll be st- still be subject to the law of sin and death in our bodies. But because we have this hope, can we wait patiently? I'll ask again. Can we wait patiently? Yeah. Amen. Isn't that a great symbol? And it's all built right into the Passover. It's all right here. All right, next. Why do we um, recline at the table? The first Passover was celebrated by an enslaved people. The children of Israel were instructed to eat in haste, standing packed and ready to leave the bondage of Egypt. Today, we all may recline to show we are at rest. Jews will often use... uh, cushioned chairs, or sometimes they'll have pillows at their chairs that they use just for Passover. It's kind of neat. In the old days, the the tables were low, and they actually lay on their sides on pillows, which is why they use the word recline there. But of course, I again think about um, the idea of rest, where Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 11, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. Wonderful. All right, next is, uh, is the story of the Passover. The father will, will tell with great enthusiasm the story of the Jewish people, starting with the first Hebrew, Abraham. And you know there's some wonderful uh, uh, redemptive analogies in the story of the patriarchs. Uh, right, in, right in the story of Abraham, a father who's willing to sacrifice his only son, you see that as a redemptive analogy, an illustration of the gospel. And then there's many more, and he'll tell this story all the way up to Moses as a baby and Moses in the bulrushes in the basket, remember, and then Moses at the burning bush. And then finally Moses, uh, empowered and instructed by God, goes back into the throne room of Pharaoh and says on behalf of God, let my people go. And look what comes next. Okay. See, what I've just told you is basically the father, without necessarily knowing it, he's, if, he, if he's not a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, he would, wouldn't necessarily think of it this way. But he's telling, the, he's telling the gospel story, and the whole Passover so far has been telling the gospel. Do you see that? All right. But for us, it seems like what's about to be revealed is the means by which God is going to solve the problem of sin. And for us... Is it what comes next? What's the next thing on your list? The cup of? Oh, see, now we, we're, we're schooled in the gospel of grace, right? God's grace. That's how God solves the problem of sin. His grace, right? Not judgment. Well, it, you might think, well, they, that's where the Passover Seder kind of departs from the gospel message. You were doing a good job up to now, Mark, showing us how all of it, but not, you know, now you're a little off. No, I'm not. Let me tell you what happens here. What the, what the, um, what the Jews do here, we're not going to drink it right yet, so don't, don't, don't get it out. I'm going to tell you what they do. Well, actually, you're going to need to get ready. They, they, and you, you'll probably just need to be careful here, I know, because this will be a little messy. What they do is they dip their finger in the, in the grape juice of this cup, and they put a, a drop on their plate. They do it ten times and call out the plagues. Now, if you don't feel like you can handle that at, your, at where you are without spilling, fine. I'll just, I'll just do it up here. All right? Blood, boils, frogs, hail, vermin, locusts, flies, darkness, pestilence, slaying the firstborn. Now, this illustrates the gospel by what they don't do, not by what they do. And here's what they don't do. Blood boils frogs. Get them, God, with the hail and the vermin and the locusts and the flies and the darkness and the pestilence and kill their firstborn God. That's not what they're doing. You see, this is a cup of judgment, sometimes called the cup of plagues. Therefore, it's God's judgment on the Egyptians, right? So when the Jews drink it in the Passover Seder, it's a cup of joy to them because they get to leave Egypt. Am I making sense? But notice this. Before they drink it, with every declaration of God's judgment on the Egyptians, a little bit of the cup of joy that they will drink is removed. They're not rejoicing over God's judgment on their enemies. They're showing compassion. Does anybody see the gospel in that? 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a cross, and they were mocking him and laughing at him and saying, if you're really the Son of God, come down off that cross. And you know what he said from the cross? Father, forgive them. Keep going. For they know not what they do. Jesus didn't want them to be treated as their sins deserve. That's called mercy. That was the heart of the God-man. 
Now, God the Father didn't necessarily uh, uh, extend his mercy to everybody at the cross. We, I don't think everybody at, who was there at the cross was saved. But that's another subject. The point is the God-man, that was his heart. And he's our example to follow with regard to that. But anyway, it was mercy illustrated in connection with this cup as well as judgment. And so uh, it's a very important thing for us to understand. And I could go at length into this. And I, I hope that you don't struggle with this, with this concept. But I, I think a lot of Christians do. Justice, God's justice and his mercy are not contrary. They're not oppositional. They go together. In fact, we could not experience God's mercy if God didn't pour out his judgment on his own son on the sins of, that, of ours that he took upon himself. God's justice had to be, had to be satisfied And so he took it in the person of Jesus Christ upon himself. Are you glad tonight? Are you glad tonight that the means of God's solution to the problem of sin is justice and mercy? And now, once we realize the means that God's going to use to solve the problem of sin, now we can recognize the instrument by which he is going to uh, solve that problem of sin through justice and mercy. And that's what comes next. Get ready to read. This bone represents the Paschal Lamb. The Paschal Lamb was slain and its blood was placed on the doorposts and lintels and the Holy One passed over our father's houses in Egypt when he saw that blood. Since the temple in Jerusalem no longer stands, lamb is not eaten at Passover. This bone remains to remind us of the sacrificial lamb. So there is the instrument that God is going to use by means of justice and mercy to solve the problem of sin, the Passover lamb. Identified, but not yet named. He'll be named later. But now that we've seen the means by which God's going to use to solve the problem of sin and the, uh, the instrument by which he's going to solve the problem of sin, we can rejoice. And so that's what comes next. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> How great is God's goodness to us. For each of his acts of mercy and kindness, we declare dienu. It would have been sufficient. If the Lord had merely rescued us but had not judged the Egyptians. If he'd only destroyed their gods but had not parted the Red Sea. If he'd only drowned our enemies but had not fed us with manna. If he'd only led us through the desert but had not given us the Sabbath. If he'd only given us the Torah but not the land of Israel. It would have been sufficient. But the Holy One, blessed be he provided all of these blessings for our ancestors, and not only these, but so many more. Together, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Now this Seder program basically follows the, the, a really truncated version of the, of the Haggadahs that Jewish families will do, except for this next prayer. This is why it's called a Messianic Passover Seder. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, for you have in mercy supplied all our needs. You've given us Messiah forgiveness for sin, life abundant, and life everlasting. Hallelujah. So now let's take the second drink, second sip of the cup. Scholars suggest that this, uh, well, I'll leave that for later. Um, Jesus drank the cup of judgment that was due on our sin so that we could drink a cup of joy.
Glory to God. Amen. The next thing is the Passover supper, which we're not doing. But I wanted to mention this real quickly, uh, that uh, I think it's really wonderful that in the Bible, having a meal together is symbolic of relationship. One of the best illustrations of that is in Revelation chapter 3, where God is, Jesus is speaking to churches, therefore he's speaking to Christians. A lot of people use it as an evangelism verse. I don't think really it is. It's, a, it's, about, it's about Christians who have, have been in sin. And he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, that's repentance, and open the door, that's confession, I will come in to him and have a meal with him and he with me. The relationship would be restored. And so we saw from the beginning of this, the problem of sin needs to be dealt with. That was the you know, purging out of the leaven. Remember that? And then all the other symbols of purity illustrating the problem of sin and the need for purification, the washing. And then the dramatic taste of the horseradish. And the, even when we ate the apple, we had that little bitter taste because we're, even believers are still subject to love, sin, and death in their flesh. All those symbols, I forgot the tears uh, that we tasted as well. Uh, there was all of those symbols of the problem of sin. And then, and then slowly a little bit of light. How is God going to solve the problem? We look to the Heavenly Father just as a child looks to his fa- earthly father to help him deal with the, the yeast in his house. We look to our Heavenly Father to deal with sin in our lives. Uh, How's he going to do it? He's going to use justice and mercy. And he's going to use the instrument of the Passover lamb so we can rejoice. And once we realize that. He's solving the problem of sin. We can be in right relationship. Although we're unholy people, we can be in right relationship and have fellowship with a holy God. And that's what the meal represents. Isn't that marvelous? And the meal, of course, focuses on the Passover lamb. All right. Well, uh, if you have, uh, like I have, waited a long time with all those tastes in our mouths and finally washed some sweet grape juice, washed those tastes away. If you want to drink something else, you're welcome to do that now. I'm going to because my mouth is dry. And I've got a lot more to share with you. I I know I'm going a 1,000 miles an hour, but everybody okay? Because we're just going to keep going. And uh, all right. It's time for us to share the afikom and the dessert, the final food eaten at Passover. It is shared as the Passover lamb was shared from the time of the Exodus until the destruction of the temple. It is said that the taste of the afikomen should linger in our mouths. Now, I need to tell you a few things about this. And I, I don't have uh, time enough to tell you in detail. But this, this has a connection with last what we celebrated last Sunday, which was what? Palm Sunday, where we remember what, you know, many times you read it's called the triumphal entry. Okay, or Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and Jesus allows himself to be uh, identified and publicly declared to be the Messiah for the first time at that level of public uh, awareness. Okay, what you may not know is that uh, the event that happened that day when the people gathered with palm branches and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That didn't happen just then. It happened every year on the 10th of the, of the first month of the Jewish calendar, Nisan. Going back to the time of uh, the, the, the United Kingdom of Israel, 
uh, and especially under Solomon when the Solomonic Temple was was uh, was built. They're, they were experiencing a nationalistic fervor, and so they wanted to not just have a Passover Seder in their homes. They wanted to have a national Passover celebration. So the high priest, using the instructions given to fathers in Exodus chapter 12, would go outside of the city and choose a male lamb, a year old, without spot or blemish, and parade it into the city to be tied up in the temple courts to see if it met the qualifications of being the Passover lamb, and then it would be slaughtered on the 14th, which was Passover. Now, the people who came to Jerusalem during that time, and it became a tradition for for boys 12 years old and up to travel with their families if they possibly could to Jerusalem to participate in the national Passover celebration. They would bring their Passover lambs as well. And so Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that sometimes there were tens of thousands of animals brought. And they all were in this big parade with the high priest and the, and the national Passover lamb where people would gather in the streets, wave palm branches, and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the reference in your, in your uh, Haggadah is from Psalm 118. And if you read that, you'll see those very words. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And a lot of other, a lot of other references to salvation and God becoming our salvation, that kind of thing. You'll have to look it up. I don't have time to go through it. But uh, what day? We, we sing that song, you know, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. We, we, we pray maybe before service, Lord, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's great. But that particular passage was actually talking about a particular day. And it was talking about the 10th of Nisan, the day that the Passover lamb was brought in. And during Jesus' day that the Passover lambs were brought in and the day that Jesus came in. What Jesus probably did was he just joined the parade. That same passage says, um, Hosanna, which means Actually, it, doesn't say, it says that in Hebrew, but in English it reads, O Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it says, with bows in hand, uh, join the procession up to the horns of the altar. Or another translation says, with, uh, um, bind the sacrifice up to the horns of the altar. I think both of those translations, uh, I, don't, I don't think they're problematic that they're a little different. It's difficult sometimes to translate Hebrew, but both of them really refer to the same kind of a thing. Uh, and it's all about this day. Well, Jesus probably just joined the parade, but he came in, remember, in a particular way. He came in on a donkey. And he did that, again, to identify what kind of Messiah he was, the Messiah who was not the earthly leader who would lead the Israelites in war against their oppressors, who at the time of Christ were the Romans, Okay, but uh, if he had been that, if the Messiah was supposed to be uh, that kind of a a leader, then leading the armies of Israel, he would have ridden a war horse like the ancient Israelite kings did when they went to war. But when ancient Israelite kings went to make peace with another people, guess what they always rode? They rode a donkey. So Jesus rides a donkey to illustrate that, but also to fulfill prophecy. The Jews should have expected their Messiah to come to Israel, come to uh, Jerusalem in this way. Um, because in Zechariah 9.9, it's quite amazing, actually, how specific it is. In Zechariah 9.9, this is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They should have expected him to do that. They should have expected him because of Isaiah 9, 6, which says, 
Again, speaking of the Messiah, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What's the last one? Prince of Peace, right? He wasn't coming to make war on men. He was coming to make war on sin and peace between God and men. That's how he was announced as a baby, right? Peace on earth on whom God's favor rests, right? Peace on earth among men on whom God's favor rests. So the reason why I mention all that is because the word afikomen is translated uh, sometimes the arrival. And this is the part where the father will ask a child to find the hidden matzah, which I told you Hillel said symbolized the Messiah. Right. And I told you that predates Christ so that at the Last Supper, when it says in Matthew and Mark, after the meal, Jesus took bread, what piece of bread would that be? That would be this piece of bread. Okay? It says he blessed it, and you'll see the prayer that he prays. It's significant. And he broke it, and he said what? This is my body. And we, you know, there's been a lot of controversy in the church. What exactly does that mean? Well, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll relieve you of some of your questions with regard to that as we go along because it makes perfect sense when you see it in this context. But anyway, um, when Jesus took that bread, his disciples would have known the teaching of Hillel, that that piece of bread already represented the Messiah. So when Jesus said, this is my body, you know, maybe they didn't connect everything, but, but they would have been thinking, hey, wait a second, what's going on here? All right. Well, anyway, what happens is the child will bring the uh, piece of matzah to his father and his father will buy it back or ransom it back with a piece of silver. This is a, a silver dollar. I just use as an, uh, an object lesson. And he'll take it out and he'll, it's already been broken. He'll break it up into small pieces and give it to everybody. And uh, they're supposed to eat all of it, just like I told you. The symbolism of the, of the lamb has shifted to the bread. And so they're supposed to eat all of the bread like they were supposed to eat all of the lamb in Exodus chapter 12. All right? Everybody still with me? Okay, good. Um, so, as I told you, Jesus... Uh, at the Last Supper, it says, after the meal, Jesus took bread. That would be this piece. Now, I don't think it, was, it had come to be known as afikomen during the time of Christ. It came to be known as afikomen, I think, probably shortly thereafter, if not overlapping the life of Christ. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I haven't been able to find that historically, but it, it's early. It just may not be as early as the life of Christ. But let me ask you this. Do you suppose Jesus knew that all the symbolism of the lamb would shift to the bread after 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, of course he did. Okay, did he know also that it would be used uh, as a in a truncated version of the of the Last Supper in what we call the Lord's Table or Communion? Sure. Okay. Uh, so he takes this bread and he blesses it, and you can see in your booklet what uh, what the prayer is that he prayed over it. And he gives it to his disciples. Um, Jesus' life has incredible connections with this bread. His life as the Messiah has incredible connections with this bread. And when he said, this is my body, I think these are the reasons why he was saying that. 
Okay, not for us to wonder, oh, does that really become his body or does that spiritually become his body? What's really going on there? It has incredible connections with his with his life. Uh, Let me try to illustrate that. Okay, first of all, what kind of bread is this? Matzah or unleavened bread, unleavened, meaning without yeast, meaning without sin. Okay, see the symbol of purity. Okay. Where did this piece of bread come from? It came out of this matzah cover, which I told you the Jews don't agree on all the reasons why there's three uh, compartments and three pieces of bread. But did you notice this? Three, all of the same dough, all unleavened bread in a white matzah cover symbolizing purity, but in each three different pieces in three compartments, but in one matzah cover. Can anybody think of a better illustration of the Trinity than what we're looking at here? Which piece of bread was removed? Do you remember? The middle matzah, the second person of Trinity, the son. Okay? Like it says in Philippians chapter 2, he was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness. So he became a human. But even apart from... His glory as part of the Godhead in the same way that he had been. I'm not saying he, he, he didn't lose his godness. He just gained his humanity along with his godness. Okay? I know that's not good grammar, but you get it. But once it's out, what kind of bread is it? Still unleavened, right? Hebrews chapter 15 says... Uh, Chapter 4, verse 15 says he was tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin. So, so far, everything that I've shared with you, does it make sense for Jesus to say this is my body? Sure it does. But what else? This doesn't have yeast in it, so it will not rise. But what will happen is when you mix the dough together, it, it, it gets air in it. And so when it gets heated and cooked, that air will expand and the gluten in the dough will hold together and cause and the air expanding will cause a bubble so to keep this from being one big bubble that the top of the bubble burns because it gets close to the heat they put holes in it or they pierce it all right and where they they've pierced it it holds together and so it doesn't bubble up but it just does bubble up a little bit between those piercings so it rises a little bit there, bubbles up and gets closer to the heat, and it gets a little darker where it gets closer to the heat, so it's pierced and it's striped. Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah, says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This is my body. His body was, uh, <clears throat> well, th- this bread was baked, okay, and Heat or fire in the Bible often symbolizes judgment. Did Jesus experience judgment? Man's judgment and, thank, thank God, God's judgment on our behalf, right? The bread is broken, symbolizing that he died. Jesus didn't faint in the, uh, on the cross and then get revived in a cool tomb. And that's how his resurrection was carried off by his disciples. No, he actually rose from the dead, right? But uh, if this were... If the, if the main symbol to focus on were the lamb uh, and you broke the lamb up, then bones would be broken. But what was the prophecy about the Messiah's body? 
Not a bone would be broken. And so every time this is broken up and passed around, no bones are broken because it's just bread. But it still carries the symbolism of Christ's body. All right. Uh, It's wrapped in white linen. I told you this symbol. He'll wear it as his burial shroud. Points to Christ. He's hidden in a tomb for three days. And at just the right time, he's ransomed back as a hostage from death by the Father. And presented to all as the bread of life for all who partake of him. Does it make sense for Jesus to say this is my body? But there's a little more. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Beit Lechem. Beit in Hebrew meaning house of or city of. And Lechem is the Hebrew word for bread. Jesus is born in the house of bread. Isn't that an incredible coincidence? He was raised in a town called Nazareth or Nezturet probably referring to the branches of a wheat stalk on which the wheat berries grow, from which you make bread. He uses it in his teaching when he says, if a kernel of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit, the fruit of a wheat plant, or wheat berries from which you make bread. Okay? And one more thing. Uh, he, uh, he was crucified on Passover, but Passover is not the only Jewish festival during the spring. They all kind of pile one right on top of the other. Uh, the next one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Jesus was buried in connection with the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he was raised in connection with the feast called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, Romans chapter 8 talks about first fruits. Okay? It refers to Jesus as the first fruits. But the most significant passage that will help you to understand this is, especially if you look at the prayer that Jesus prays over this bread. Uh, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul's talking about resurrection. He says, if there is no resurrection, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all men most to be pitied because our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits from out of the ground. It's resurrection, you see it? And if Jesus gets to be the, is, is the first fruits, who gets to be the second fruits? Amen. Glory to God. All those who are in Christ, I hope you are. Okay, so, do you see it? The, uh, the last thing, uh, uh, before we, uh, well, two, two things. The, bread, the, the prayer that he prays, look at it. We're going to pray it together in a minute, but I'll just read it now. Blessed art thou, O Lord of God, King of the universe. Look, look, look up here at me. King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. What's Jesus saying by the prayer that Jews pray over every single time they use this bread? And they have been since the time, back towards the time of Moses. It's a prophecy about what? Right, because the last step in the life story of the Messiah on this earth is not his death. It's his resurrection and his ascension. Amen? So there it's told. Blessed art thou, Lord of God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit, um, uh, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then one last thing. I really, I really wanna, um, don't want to miss this. If you'll, uh, if you'll take your Bible, if you have it, and if you want to look at it, you can. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. Okay? Hebrews chapter 10. I really want, really want you to hear this. This is something that I've re- learned recently. Uh, 
Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? See, when this was written, they were still being offered because the temple in Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed yet. You with me? Okay. If it could, would they not have been stopping, stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Wow. Imagine being a Hebrew and, getting, and, and receiving this. You spent your whole life having annual reminders of sins. Now, there were lots of sacrifices. Some sacrifices were offered daily. And if you, if you were unclean, and if you're unclean several times a day, you go offer sacrifices to get, unclean, uh, to get cleansed again. Okay, so there are lots of different kinds of sacrifices, but there were some sacrifices that were annual. Remember the Day of Atonement? You know, when the sacrifice was offered on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies once a year by the high priest. High priest had jingle bells on the bottom of his garment and a, and a cord tied to his ankles because they thought, well, if God doesn't accept our sacrifice, he'll strike him dead and we'll have to pull him out under the curtain because nobody else can go in there. And they're all waiting outside to see if God accepts the sacrifice. And they're hoping to hear those jingle bells to know he's still moving around inside there. And they're all, have this, they're all anxious. And when the high priest comes out, they all breathe in you know, a collective sigh of relief. And then guess what? 364 more days of anxiety because of sin. What was another annual sacrifice? Passover. So it's referring to this. And it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Listen carefully to this. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said. And if you're looking at it, what comes next is a quote from Psalm 40. Now, Psalm 40 is long before Christ came into the world. Well, yeah, just like, well, actually all the Psalms in one way or another are Messianic prophecy. This is an overt Messianic prophecy, not of something that Jesus specifically said, but the, but the heart, the message of the Messiah, the prayer uh, the, the, the submission of the Messiah and Jesus Christ to his heavenly father. This is what it quotes the Messiah as saying as he came into the world. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, speaking to God, but a body you prepared for me. Jesus said, this is my, right? Did you hear that? Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. What body? The body of a boy, of a child born of Mary. In Bethlehem and growing up in Nazareth, a human body whereby he would pay, he would live a righteous human life and pay the human death penalty that was required. This is the incarnation, you see it? A body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in your scroll. Now listen to this. Afikoman, it's interesting. Afikoman is not a Hebrew word. If you've noticed, there's Hebrew words that go with all of these, most of all of these parts of the Seder that I've gone through. But Afikoman is not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. And it's translated, as I told you, the arrival. That's the noun form. But the verb form is afikomenos. Afikomenos means I have come. Let me read this again. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. Oh, my God. Now, if that doesn't put chills up and down your spine, I don't know what will. 
That's, that's what all goes with Jesus saying, this is my body. That's what goes with the afikomen. It was Jesus speaking of the afikomen that Hillel said represented the Messiah. And now you know. So in your, um, in your uh, box there, you may want to take a piece of um, the matzah just to represent the afikomen. We'll pray the prayer and we'll uh, t- taste this and move on to the last part. Okay? Let's read the prayer. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Before I move on, real quickly, I want to tell you this. Jesus said, this is my body. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me, right? Now, here's the thing. What's really important is what the meaning of this is. And I, I'm not trying to be irreverent in any kind of way or rebellious, uh, you know, in my own denomination, for instance. But that this could not have meant what we do on the table that oftentimes has carved in it, do this in remembrance of me. Do you understand what I mean? It could not have meant what we do. What we do is, is good and fine and wonderful. But when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, the question is, how did his disciples understand it? And what we've just been doing, what we've just been going through, they would have understood it in that context. And I, I'm not saying that we should do this in any kind of way legalistically or ritualistically. But I will say this. Uh, what I didn't quote to you, I, I failed to do earlier, was when I talked to you about the, this symbol, remember? The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says to the, he's rebuking the, the, the Corinthians because they, they had, hadn't dealt with a, a matter of sin in their community as they should have. And he says, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch of yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, he was talking about the getting rid of the yeast in the context of the Passover. And then he says, let us therefore keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Now, do you know what kind of church he was talking to? The Corinthians were not a primarily Jewish church, and and probably they were almost exclusively a Gentile church. All right. So he's expecting them not to become Jews. Of course, we know that clearly from what his teaches his teachings are. But he expected them to understand even this in the context in which in in which Christ, the revelation of Christ is revealed in the Passover that Jesus himself revealed was a revelation of himself in the Passover. Is this making sense to you? So if Paul expected that Gentile church to understand this in this context, I'm glad you're here so that you'll understand it in this context, too. I think we ought to. All right. Okay. The leader will say, let us fill our cups for the third time. This is the cup of redemption, symbolizing the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, each of the, pa- each of the cups goes with a promise. The promise uh, er- that we read earlier, or that I read earlier, that goes with the cup of redemption is written below here. Let's all read it together. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's the promise that God... God made to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 6. Excuse me. 
Now, I, I need to say a couple of things here. It says, this is the cup uh, symbolizing the blood of the Passover, the cup of redemption symbolizing the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, it says, after the bread, Jesus took the cup. This is at the Last Supper. So that would be this cup. Make sense? And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Now, if the Jews are saying this in the Passover Seder, that this is, symbolizes the blood of the Passover lamb, and Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, what's Jesus saying? That he's the Passover lamb. Remember I told you the instrument by which God was going to solve the problem of sin was identified, but not yet named. Jesus named himself as the Passover lamb at the Last Supper. All right? And it goes with this promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Now I've got some marvelous things to tell you, and I've got to go really, really fast. The scriptures that you have in front of you, uh, underneath that, Exodus chapter 6, that's where that, that, that promise comes from. But I'm going to tell you about several others, and I'm not going to go read them. Um, I'm going to tell you about them. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple, the first temple that he built. And he speaks of those who come from foreign lands, that would be Gentiles, because they hear of God's great name and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And they'll come to worship at the temple. And then, God, and then uh, um, Solomon prayed, you know, do for them what they ask of you, that all will know that you are, 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 are the God of Israel and that salvation has come to the world uh, and can worship here at this place. That's 1 Kings 8. Some not, uh, but notice it said outstretched arm. Okay? Now I need to tell you something else I forgot. Remember this? I didn't write this in your booklet, but uh, the Hebrew... Uh, maybe I did write this in your booklet. Let me see. Uh, yeah, I did. It's on page five. The Hebrew word for this is zaroa. Zaroa. All right? That's the shank bone of the lamb. The Hebrew word is zechoa. All right? Now, uh, I told you, Exodus chapter 6 talks about the outstretched arm of the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 8 talks about the outstretched arm of the Lord. Psalm 91 says, sing to the Lord a new song. For the Lord has uh, done marvelous things, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Um, His mighty hand and his outstretched arms have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He's remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That's Psalm 98. And Isaiah 51 talks about uh, the arm of the Lord twice, talking about bringing justice to nations with the arm of the Lord. And it talks about the islands looking in hope to the arm of the Lord. And then Psalm, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 10 says, The Lord will lay, listen to this one, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and the whole world will see the salvation of our God. And then Isaiah 59 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. You know whose arms are too short to save? Mine, yours. So later in Isaiah 59, it says, so his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. Now, I've just given you a a few of the verses that talk about the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. There's many more. I hope you're understanding that. There's many more. It's impressive how many there are. 
What's this arm of the Lord? He keeps talking. Arm of the Lord, arm of the Lord, arm of the Lord. The place where you want to go to find out what that means is where it's revealed in Isaiah 53. You have to look back from Isaiah 59 to Isaiah 53. The most important Old Testament passage about the Messiah. And in fact, in, um, in the, uh, uh, the, the traditional readings of the Old Testament pro- uh, prophecies that the, that the um, rabbis read in the synagogues, one passage used to be read regularly, it's no longer read. It's Isaiah 53. It starts out like this. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it goes on and says things like this. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. We considered him smitten by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And there's a lot more significant stuff in that chapter. I encourage you to read it. But uh, I will say this. Did you see that passage reveals the arm of the Lord is not a thing? The arm of the Lord is a he, according to that passage. And the he is the Messiah. And we know that the Messiah is Jesus. And so, Jesus takes the cup. It goes with the promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And he was the outstretched arm. Every place that you read in the Old Testament, the word arm, the word is Zeroah. You think I'm making this up? <laughs> How clever am I? No. God, only God could, could, do, could reveal this like this. Do you see it? So, there he was, the outstretched arm of the Lord, hanging on a cross with his arms outstretched to buy, redeem us back from slavery to sin. Isn't that great? But there's another symbol here that we have got to rapidly go through, and that is this. Um, Jesus said something else that, was, that would have caught the disciples' attention. This is the cup of a new covenant. We've already talked about covenants. I won't talk about it so much anymore, except to say this. There was a covenant that every Jew wanted to participate in, and that was a covenant of betrothal. Now, we use the word engagement today, but betrothal probably is a better term for those of us in, in the faith because betrothal was a covenant. Engagement isn't. Engagement, people break engagements all the time. Right? But a betrothal was legally binding because it was a covenant. You couldn't break it unless you had a certificate of divorce. And you may think, well, if they're not married, how can they have a divorce? Well, because it was a covenant. Okay, it was legally binding. Uh, but then, really, you already knew that because we're at, uh, we're, um, Joseph and Mary married when Joseph found out that she was going to have a child, but he didn't yet know that it was by the Holy Spirit. No, they weren't married. And what was he going to do? Divorce her quietly because he didn't want to, you know, subject her to public disgrace and maybe being stoned to death because as an adulterous woman or that that's what people might have perceived, they could have stoned her to death. So he loved her and he wanted to put her right quietly, but he wasn't going to marry her until God said, go ahead and do it. You see, so it's a legally binding thing. 
And this is how it goes. When a young man wanted to be married, he would, he would talk to his father. Hopefully his father, if he was a devout man, would pray with him about it. And they would consider, talk about the prospective bride. And if he, he agreed on, on the young man's choice, uh, then he would, he would talk with his son about what was called the bride price. That was an amount of wealth that the young man was willing to go without, to give up in order to have her in return. It wasn't buying a bride. It was just he wanted her that much, he loved her that much, that he was willing to give up so many, you know, and his father set the price too. So many camels, so many donkeys, so many chickens, so much of his gold, whatever it was. And, you know, the father might set the price really, really high, and the son might say, Dad, you're cleaning me out. But if he was obedient, was an obedient son, he'd do it. And if he loved her very much, he would give that wealth up in order to have her because she was worth much more to him. Isn't that a romantic gesture? Come on, ladies, you have to admit, culturally it is. All right. What would happen then, when that was agreed on, he would go to the father of the, they would go, the father and the son would go to the father of the prospective bride. And uh, if the father thought it was a good match and, and also agreed upon the bride price, don't think he's selling his daughter because he doesn't have the say-so. He asks his daughter. If she says no, that's it. It's all over. But if she says yes, then what happens is this. They gather in a public place with the elders of the village and other people there, all the guests, and they have a, a covenant ceremony where they make their vows of love and faithfulness to one another. And the symbol that sealed the deal was a toast of the bridegroom to the bride. And if she accepted it and drank of it as well, then they were legally betrothed, then the young man would say, I'm going to go get things ready for us to be married. And they would separate for up to a year. And he works quickly because he wants to be married, but he has to follow his father's advice about everything. So if you asked him during the year of preparation uh, for their marriage, when are you going to marry her? He'd say, well, my father's the only one who knows. All right. Well, now the bride, she has to be ready also. She has to be ready in two particular ways. One, she has to be ready because she has to be pure. If she's found to be impure during that year, she's considered to be an adulteress and could face really bad consequences. She will actually dress in a way that's different than from a woman who's not betrothed so that anybody seeing her on the street would know, oh, she, she belongs to somebody. She's, she's had a bride price paid for her. She's, a, she's got a covenant of betrothal. We can't approach her with, a, with another covenant. And she also has to be ready because she doesn't know exactly when he's going to be coming. You see, the Jews played out this, uh, this uh, sort of romantic elopement tradition where the bridegroom would sneak over in the middle of the night and symbolically steal her away. They knew he was coming. They just didn't know exactly the time. Uh, and they played that out romantically. And uh, so she had to have, in the days of the Bible, oil in her lamps and she had to have her bridesmaids nearby to help her get ready when the bridegroom came. And the bridegroom uh, needed to give her a little bit of warning. You know, he didn't want to catch her in her curlers. He needed to give her a little bit of warning. So, so somebody would say, behold, the bridegroom comes. And then somebody would blow a blast on the shofar, the ram's horn. Uh, and when they heard that, Everything would speed up, be all excited. She'd get her hair done, put her veil on so she's nice and modest. And they'd, he'd take her under this canopy where they'd have the wedding ceremony. And then he'd take her into this chamber, which he's been working this whole year to prepare for her. They're going to have their wedding night in this chamber called the chuppah, which doesn't sound very romantic, but that's what it's called. Anyway, uh, 
outside of the chuppah, the best man is planning a big party that lasts for seven to ten days called a marriage supper. And if you want to ask anything about the marriage supper, you have to ask the best man because he's in charge because the, the bridegroom and the bride are in the chuppah. Okay? But when the bridegroom tells the best man that he and the bride are coming out, the best man passes back. I mean, he, he fades back into the background. He's not important anymore because the most important people at the marriage supper are the bridegroom and the bride. Now, you probably already see where I'm, where I'm going with all this, but the point is Jesus was acting out his role as a Jewish bridegroom in every detail, and much of it is carried out right in the context of the night uh, of the, uh, uh, and, and the day after that um, Jesus was, uh, made his vow of love and faithfulness and, and used this cup of the new covenant in his blood, okay? Uh, and also his conversations with his disciples recorded in the Gospels right at the Last Supper or near, nearabouts it, okay? And you probably already see some of that, but I'm going to try to work through it as quickly as I can in order to save us enough time so that we, we finish on time, okay? Um, first of all, Jesus makes a cup. He says, this is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. It was the blood of the Passover lamb. He's, he's the Passover lamb, but notice this. It's also representing the bride price. His life. And we can't even comprehend that because we're not just talking about a human death. We're talking about the God man now whose father turns his back on his son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, Jesus says it says it pleased the father to bruise him. We can't comprehend it. You know, the Apostles Creed, he descended into Hades, right? These are things we can't fully comprehend. So the death of Christ, the price that he paid was immense. We can't we can't imagine it. If you think about dying, that's nothing compared to what Jesus experienced. Would you agree? Okay. My point is, as a man, Jesus felt the, price, the weight of that bride price that his father had chosen for him. And in his humanity, he wasn't even sure that he could pay it. So he goes out after he makes this vow into the Garden of Gethsemane. You know the story. And he, and he asks his disciples to pray with him. They fall asleep. And then he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me i always thought that cup was a figure of speech growing up now i know it's not do you see but because he knows he's an obedient son what does he say nevertheless not my will but thine be done he goes and wakes his disciples up asks them to pray again they fall asleep again he goes back prays and says this time father since it's not possible that this cup should pass for me except i drink it thy will be done now he's not asking out of it anymore. Now he's saying, I'm going to do it. Thy will be done. He's getting more determined. He's clenching his teeth. Why? Because he loves us. In fact, the scripture tells us that as he prayed, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And the word that's used there, he was praying so fervently. It's a word that means um, sticking your neck out. <laughs> outstretched, straining with every muscle to love his bride. If you're part of the bride, you should be glad of that tonight. He goes and wakes his disciples up the last time and he says the soldiers are here and Peter does something very Peter-like. What did he do? Pulled the sword out, chopped off a high priest's servant named Malchus's ear. Uh, and Jesus restores the ear and says to, P says to Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me to drink? Do you see, three times he mentions the cup. 
any doubt in your mind after what I've just shared with you, what cup he's talking about? This cup, the cup that represents the bride price that he was willing to pay for you and me. So he's acting on his role as a Jew, of, a, of a Jewish bridegroom in every detail. Back before all that, at the Last Supper, in, recorded in John chapter 14, he tells the disciples, after he makes the vow of love and faithfulness like, like, the, like the bridegroom would do, he says, I'm going to leave you. And they're all upset. And he says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many chambers. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. The chuppah, right? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will surely come again to receive you to myself. That means marry you, that where I am, there you may be also. When they asked him, when are you returning? What did he say? Only my father knows. See, it's, it's all played out like this. Now remember, the bride has to be ready as well. And who's the bride? The church, okay? In Ready in purity and ready in readiness. How are we doing with those? Just for you to ponder. I won't get into that in detail. But I would ask you to consider this. The Bible talks about that purity in lots and lots of different ways. And of course, heart purity is the most important purity. But there's one kind of purity that goes between a bride and a bridegroom that's important between a bride and bridegroom before they're married and then throughout their marriage. It's spoken of in First, um, first Corinthians chapter 6. And if you look at the context, you'll understand the, the, the area that I'm talking about if you don't already. But there's one famous passage in there that says this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and you are not your own? You were bought with a price. What price is Paul talking about? The bride price. Therefore glorify God in your body. That's why, especially for those of you who are unmarried, that's why purity in that particular area of your life is so important. Because your body's not yours to do with as you please. And how about readiness? Remember the parable of the ten virgins? If you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. Some of them didn't have oil in their lamps and they weren't ready when their bridegroom showed up. And Jesus told that parable along with another number of parables, if you read this in Matthew, uh, uh, to talk about his second coming. And basically he's saying, hey, bride, be ready when I come because you don't know when I'm going to come. Because like it says in 1 Thessalonians, he'll come like a what? Like a thief in the night. And Thessalonians were really confused about this. They wondered about death. And they, they asked Paul, what about those Christians who've already died? And Paul says this. He says, brothers, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning those which are asleep. That means dead. Uh, that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel. Remember, behold, the bridegroom comes. And the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amazing. I didn't make this up. I'm not near clever enough to take thousands of years and dozens of different writers over those thousands of years and and thread all this together. Only God. What comes next? Well, the judgment. And if you've ever feared the judgment, I'd ask, as I have, I'd ask you to consider this. The symbol of the judgment would be the chuppah. In the chuppah, the, the bride's veils are removed and all of her secrets are known by her bridegroom. And the bride knows the, the bridegroom's secrets as well. There's nothing between them anymore. Like it says in First Corinthians chapter 13, we will know him even as we are known. 
That's the intimacy of the bride and the bridegroom in the chuppah. And after that is the marriage supper. Well, John the Baptist in John chapter 3 is asked if he's the Messiah. Repeatedly he was asked if he was the Messiah. And he says, I'm not the Messiah. And you could testify that I said I'm, the, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. And then he says something that seems to come completely out of left field. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. If I hadn't told you what I just told you, you'd wonder, what was he up to? Now you know. He says, the, the friend of the bridegroom responds with great joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And then he makes the famous statement, he must increase, I must decrease. See, John the Baptist knew he was the best man. And he had to pass into the background because the bridegroom came to front and center. With his bride, who is? The church. Right. That's the, that's the concept. So, um, last of all, this. When the, when, the, um, when the bridegroom and the bride meet at the... At the um, well, I, I guess I should say this. When the bride and the bridegroom come out of the chuppah, then there's a big party that lasts for eternity. It lasts for five to seven days. For us, that's eternity. You see it? I'm going so fast, it's hard. Uh, when the vows of love and faithfulness are made, uh, the bride price is paid. And in, in, in Jesus' day, when, when, when debts were paid, it would be indicated publicly, posted publicly, that the debt was paid off. And in, in the Greek culture, there was a, a word that's, that we translate as a phrase, uh, um, the word is tetelestai, and it, it's the phrase paid in full. So they would indicate that he was good to his promise to pay this bride price for her. He's paid it off. Okay, so Jesus hung on a cross 2,000 years ago. Here he was, the bride price, posted publicly for all to see. And then from the cross, one of the last things he says, and you know it, you can help me with it, he says, it is finished. That's what you read if you read it in an English translation. But if you read the Greek New Testament, you'd read the word tetelestai. The Greek means paid in full. The bride price is paid in full. So, we're going to drink this cup. But we're going to look at one last thing. We're going to look at the prayer that it goes with. I told you, the toast. Now, this is a prayer they've been praying since shortly after or maybe during the time of Moses. And they pray it every year. And Jesus prayed it. It says, after the meal, Jesus took the cup. It says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It says, he, he, he took the cup and he blessed it. That's the prayer. What prayer did he pray? It's a prayer that is a toast to the bride. Because in John 15, which is also at the Last Supper, Jesus said this, these famous words. I am the vine, you are the... Where does the fruit grow? On the branches. So, look at this prayer. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. He's using that famous old Passover prayer over the cup to be a toast to his bride. Do you see it? So take your cup. We're going to drink it a third time, and then we'll finish up. Okay? Let's read this together. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Okay, this cup and this place are for Elijah the prophet. Elijah did not see death, but was swept up to heaven. 
by a great whirlwind and a chariot of fire. It's been our hope that Elijah would come at Passover to announce the Messiah, son of David. A child is sent to the door to see if Elijah's come, and typically they come back and they're, he's not here. And everybody's sad because if Elijah didn't come, who isn't coming? Messiah's not coming. Right. But look at what comes next. The cup of, read it with me, praise. Or hallel, which sounds like hallelujah. Does that go with being sad? No. So what's wrong? They missed something. See, they were expecting Elijah to come because Elijah didn't die, so he, he wouldn't have to be raised from the dead. But also because at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, last verses of the Old Testament, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so they were expecting Elijah to come back, but here's the thing. They didn't understand something, and they missed something. 400 years of silence from God come after Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The first message from God in the New Testament is recorded in Luke chapter 1, in the message of the angels to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And in verse 17, this is what the angel says. He, meaning John the Baptist, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Jesus told told the Jews in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come. So Elijah came and so did the Messiah. Right. So we can drink the cup of praise. So let us fill our cups. You can get yours ready for the last time and give thanks to God our great Redeemer. Praise the Lord, all ye nations. For his mercy is great toward us, and his truth endures forever. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Some scholars suggest that this is the cup that the the Gospels record that Jesus did not drink. That this is the cup to which he referred when he said he wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drank it anew with his disciples in his kingdom. So that means the Passover Seder that Jesus had with his disciples didn't end. When's it going to end? When he returns and we begin drinking the cup of praise with him in eternity. Amen? All right, I've got to do something real quick. Well, no, it's 8 o'clock. I've got to quit right now. I would have loved to have taken the time to read to you from uh, Revelation uh, several passages, but I'll just tell you that the ones that are listed here, I'd encourage you to read. Uh, They refer to the Lamb in chapter 5. They they refer to him being worthy. Uh, They talk about um, in chapter 19... Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. You may have wondered why wedding goes with the Passover because wedding and the lamb go together. All right. And then uh, chapter. uh, It says uh, also, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, right. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I know we've gone really, really fast, and this is like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hose, but after what I've just shared with you, do you feel blessed? And not just because you're invited, but if you're, if you're a believer, you're part of the bride. Amen? 
And then the last thing would be chapter 21. Uh, well, I'm going to give you 21 and 22 here real quick. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. Look back to page one and you will see the promise that goes with the cup of praise. Listen to Revelation 21 now. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you see it? The promise in Exodus chapter 6 was about eternity. Not just the, 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 the Israelites in the promised land, but us in the promised land. All of God's people. All who are of the faith of Abraham uh, in, in the promised land. Um, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Don't you look forward to that? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, I'm making everything new. And then finally, chapter 22 says, I, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. I'm going to skip down. It says this. Uh, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And then in verse 7, my, the words are read. What does that mean? Jesus said to them, Behold, I'm coming soon. And down in verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And then in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And then it says this, the spirit and the bride say. Now, if you're part of the bride, you should know what it says. So let's see how many of you do. Don't feel bad if you don't. It's okay. The spirit and the bride say, right, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. I really hope that you're part of the bride. If you're not sure, please talk to me. Talk to pastor. Because we'd love to talk with you about it. But I've already talked to you pretty much enough of a Savior who's a bridegroom who's promised love and faithfulness to you, not just religion, not just giving you a list of things to do and a list of things not to do, but an offer of a relationship of love and faithfulness. And if you're understanding that like that for the first time, even though you've been in the church your whole life, then talk to somebody. But if you already know you're part of the bride, then just rejoice. Just rejoice. The last words in the scripture, there's red, yes, I'm coming soon. And John's response to that is, even so, come Lord Jesus. The Jews end their Passover seders like this. Our Passover seder is now complete, just as our redemption is forever complete. Let us now conclude with the traditional wish that we may celebrate Passover next year in Jerusalem. And they say, But they say it kind of wistfully. I oh, didn't come this year. <sighs> Maybe next year. But we're not looking forward to him coming for the first time. 
we're looking forward to him coming again. I hope you are. And I really hope you are. And you know what? I love life. There's some young people here who I hope you get to grow up, get, get married, have children, have grandchildren. I'm expecting my eighth grandchild, and it's fun. I mean, it's great fun to have grandchildren. I hope that you raise families and train, bring them up in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But the truth is, for all of us who are in Christ, it really would be amazing if Jesus returned this year and we were to drink, begin drinking the cup of praise with him for eternity next year in the new Jerusalem, wouldn't it? So... On three, we're going to say next year in Jerusalem, but don't say it wistfully. Say it with enthusiasm. And let's add on to it at the end, even so come Lord Jesus. Would you do that? Okay, ready? One, two, three. Next year in Jerusalem, even so come Lord Jesus. Would you stand and and pray with me? This is from Scripture with a little... uh, Addition at the end that my father used to use as a pastor, and I've always loved it uh, since I started teaching about the Passover. This is the glory words, the benediction. Now unto him who's able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the throne of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and until that day breaks when the shadows flee away and Christ himself shall come and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Shalom. Go in peace. Can I just take just a second to tell you this? Thank you for your patience and your attention. I did go seven minutes over. Thank you very much for your patience. But I do want to say... Uh, many of you don't know me. I, my name is Mark Travers. I, I, I have a ministry called Turning Hearts Ministries. And if you have, this is not all we do. Our, our, ours is a Bible teaching and disciple making ministry with a particular mission to strengthen, encourage, equip, and restore families for God's glory. We do a lot of different things. And I have an information packet, uh, information um, display with an information packet in, in the back. And I just want to tell you what's there uh, before, before I ask Pastor to come and close in prayer. Um, the packets that are in a white envelope have these things in them. A prayer card for myself and my wife and our family's picture is on there. Actually, it's a couple of years old, but still. Uh, inside, there's also a uh, page that tells you a little bit about the ministry. And then there's also a page that has feedback from people who have participated in aspects of our ministry, just some stuff from pastors and some counselees. I do a lot of biblical counseling and also people who participate in our Bible studies and our our family Bible studies and our uh, other ministry events, seminars and conferences and things like that. There's also an envelope here. Uh, If you'd like to be on our mailing list or uh, the Lord puts it on your heart to provide support is what I do full time. And, uh, um, God's faithful to provide, but he does so through uh, the generosity of his people. And uh, um, I have a hard time talking about this, but the reality is that uh, God knows our needs, but people don't. If he's going to use people to to meet those needs, they have to know about needs. So I just make a quick mention of it. Uh, And there's some information there. And actually, there's an easy way to do it online on our website, too. 
uh, which uh, website information is back there as well. You can use this QR code to go right to the to the website if you'd like to give online. Uh, on the table back there, that's all in the information packet. So if you if you want that, take the information packet. If you're just interested in a prayer card, there's loose prayer cards back there too, uh, and there's loose envelopes back there, and there's also my um, business card. Uh, so if, uh, if there's ever any way that I could be of service to you or our ministry could um, be of help to you or you want to pass that on to somebody, maybe from another church, you want to pass that on to a pastor to do a Seder or something else, uh, please, please take note of that. And uh, so I just wanted to mention that. I didn't want to take too much time, but I appreciate it. Thank you.